Donald Trump is elected the President of the United States of America. Decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. As Donald you will Trump say uh, that continues to speak to the excited crowd here in New York, we can tell you our decision desk has now uh, put Wisconsin and Pennsylvania in the Trump call. CNN projects. Donald Trump wins the presidency. That is the news at this hour. Secretary Clinton has conceded to Donald Trump. The 2016 election was one of the most improbable, unpredictable. Astounding. Unreal. A lot of surprise. Surreal. <laughs> Stunning and shocking election we have ever and seen. And this is a seismic political earthquake that will have reverberations around the world tonight. The results from four years ago took almost everybody by surprise. It was the first time anyone had won the presidency without any previous political or military experience. But it was also a historical anomaly for another reason. That candidate, Donald Trump, won the presidency while losing the popular vote, receiving about 2.9 million fewer ballots than his opponent, Hillary Clinton. That's not the first time in American history that a president has won the White House without winning the popular vote, but it is rare. And each time, those results have set off a round of hand-wringing about the system that allows it to happen. The Electoral College. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and this is Wake Up to Politics. Even though it plays a crucially important role in how we elect presidents in the United States, the Electoral College is a system that's not very well understood, and that only adds to the controversy that surrounds it. So to help us sort through how the Electoral College works, and why some people so ardently support and oppose it, I called up Rob Alexander. Hey Rob, how are you? A political science professor at Ohio Northern University. He's one of the country's top experts on the Electoral College, and he's written two different books on the subject. And he said to truly understand how the Electoral College came to be, we have to go all the way back to 1787 in Philadelphia, when the Constitution was being written. Uh, The Electoral College was one of the issues that the framers struggled with mightily. Uh, They had several different proposals. The framers spent months going back and forth on how the president should be elected. They considered giving the power to Congress, to state legislatures, and to the people themselves. But they ended up rejecting all three of those ideas. Uh, they, they met again and, uh, and devised a, a system that was a bit of a combination of all three proposals, which is the Electoral College uh, that we kind of have today. It's not quite the same thing that we have. In designing the Electoral College, the framers built in a previous compromise they had struck, the makeup of Congress. Remember, in Congress, every state has two members of the Senate, which ensures equality between the states, and a certain number of members of the House in proportion to their population, which ensures representation for states that have more citizens. In the Electoral College, every state has as many electoral votes as members in their total congressional delegation. So every state has at least three electoral votes, the sum of their two senators and at least one representative. On the other end of the spectrum, California, which has two senators and 53 representatives, has 55 electoral college votes. The framers left it up to the state legislatures to decide how their electoral votes would be awarded. Since 1836, almost every state has given their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who won their statewide popular vote, a system known as winner-take-all. Remember, Rob said that today's electoral college is kind of like the one the framers came up with. 
One way it differs is that uniformity of how states now award their electoral votes. In the beginning, there was a whole host of methods that states used, some taking into account the popular vote of their citizens, while some entirely ignored it. Another key difference is how many votes each elector gets. Uh, originally, the process was one where electors would have two votes. They would not distinguish between those two votes. Whoever received the most votes would become the president, and whoever received the second most votes would become the vice president. And that worked pretty well for the first couple of elections with uh, George Washington. But with the formation of political parties, that created some problems. Uh, by the 1796 election, we had uh, a candidate who received the most electoral votes, John Adams, followed by Thomas Jefferson, and they were of rival factions or rival political parties. That was the first sign of trouble, a vice president as the runner-up serving under a president of the other political party. Four years later, the parties began running presidential and vice presidential candidates as tickets. The only problem? The same electors were casting one vote for their party's presidential candidate and another for their running mate. So in 1800, the victors, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, tied and they each got 73 electoral votes. The House of Representatives decided that election. To avoid a replay, political leaders had to come up with a new solution. Shortly thereafter, they uh, came up with the 12th Amendment, which <laughs> had electors distinguish between their electoral votes to account for political parties. And that's roughly how we ended up with the Electoral College as it is today. At its essence, it was an institution born out of compromise and negotiation like much of the political ecosystem that the founders created. And frankly, one thing we need to keep in mind is that the framers were politicians. Uh, sure, many of them were, were amazing political theorists, but at the end of the day, they, they were looking for something that could be ratified, something that, uh, that, that people could, could get behind. They were searching for consensus. And so while the Electoral College was not perhaps their most ideal uh, model of, of Republican uh, representativeness. It was something that they could all support. So uh, in many of the same ways that we think about how our politics work today, they were looking at, you know, who would be left in and who would be left out by these different modes of representation. And the Electoral College really was a, a grand compromise. So now we know how the Electoral College was created. But how does it work in practice? Let's start on election day. So when you and I go and, and vote in November, we're actually voting for a slate of electors. That slate of electors is put forth by each political party that corresponds to the representation that you have in your state. Those electors in most states take a pledge that they will vote according to the outcomes uh, in their state or to the party that uh, has selected them. Most states, when they choose their electors, uh, they run for these positions at their state party conventions, or uh, they uh, are appointed to that position through a, maybe a state party committee. Uh, but the political parties are really the gatekeepers of who the electors actually are. And who exactly are the electors we're entrusting our presidential votes with? Rob has conducted some of the only surveys into who makes up the Electoral College, and here's what he's found. Electors are not like 
normal Americans. <laughs> they don't look like us demographically, uh, as far as education, as far as race, as far, as far as income. They look a lot more like Congress. They can't be members of Congress because that's one of the few stipulations they can't be a federal office holder. But most electors uh, have worked very hard for their political parties. They're pretty wealthy. They're more likely to be white. Um, they are more likely to be male than your average American. So like I said, they look a little bit more like the United States Congress than they would the, the United States of America. Uh, they are chosen for these positions as a reward for their party loyalty. Uh, but like I said, many of them might be loyal to the party, but not necessarily a candidate. The entire Electoral College, which encompasses 538 electors, never actually meets as a group. Instead, the slates of electors meet separately in each of their state capitals in December, on the first Monday after the second Wednesday of the month, to be exact. This year, that falls on December 14th. It's a date worth keeping in the back of your mind, especially because of how long it might take to count election results this year due to a surge of mail-in ballots. If the full results still aren't known by December 14th in some states, it's not exactly clear how those electors will be rewarded. That could lead to a situation even messier than the 2000 election, when a month-long recount in Florida kept America in suspense about who the 43rd president would be. Even though he lost the nationwide popular vote, George W. Bush was eventually declared the Electoral College winner that year. But that was only after the Supreme Court ended up settling the recount dispute. The court's decision came on December 12th, just days before the Electoral College met. So that's something of the nightmare scenario if electors meet on December 14th without knowing how they're supposed to vote. But usually, Rob said, everything goes pretty much according to plan. And most things always go uh, pretty, pretty swimmingly and there's no surprises. Although sometimes there are surprises. So what kind of surprises could those be? Only 33 states and the District of Columbia actually require their electors to cast their votes in accordance with the winner of the state's popular vote. The rest of the electors are technically free to vote as they want, and even in some states that bind their electors, there aren't always penalties that enforce those rules. When electors decide to buck their state's popular vote, they're called faithless electors. In all of American history, there have been 165 faithless electors. About a third of them come from the 1872 election, when presidential candidate Horace Greeley died before the Electoral College met. His electors voted for other candidates, a scenario that's getting some attention this year as we have two major party candidates in their 70s running against each other amid a pandemic. But for the most part, electors vote as they're told. At the founding, you know, they originally thought that these electors would use their own judgment, uh, that they would work uh, as, a, as an advocate for the people, uh, to transmit their will to uh, the president and vice president of the United States. That fell by the wayside pretty quickly with the rise of political parties. Uh, and yet nothing in the Constitution changed as far as their permissibility uh, to use their own discretion. In 2016, literally the, the night of the election, I started getting calls myself because I've done surveys on electors to kind of find out who they are. I've written on this uh, previously that many electors do consider not voting for who they're supposed to vote for. Uh, and you can imagine an elector who is a strong Democrat or a strong Republican that 
doesn't really like their party's candidate. That brings us back to the 2016 election, because faithless electors are another way that race stands out in history. Except for 1872, it is the presidential election that saw the most faithless electors, 10 in total. They're voting, there's about six weeks of lobbying that happened in 2016. They tried to persuade their fellow electors, they needed 37 electors, Republican electors, to defect. They were not trying to get Hillary Clinton to become president, interestingly. Instead, they said, let's just have some other Republican other than Donald Trump. They said that he himself was a national security threat. He himself uh, was not up for, for the position, but they would settle for a John Kasich, a Mitt Romney, a Colin Powell. They sought to have a briefing with uh, Barack Obama's uh, director of national intelligence on Russian interference, and uh, they were denied. So they had a petition to, to find out what's going on with this Russian interference. Uh, they wanted to find that out before they cast their votes. The Obama administration said, no, we're not going to give you that, that, that briefing. So that kind of spelled the doom of the, the, the notion that electors would use their own discretion to protect the country. This small group of electors dubbed themselves the Hamilton electors, after Alexander Hamilton, who had actually written that the possibility of foreign election interference was one of the reasons why an electoral college was needed in the first place. The Hamilton electors tried to reclaim that mantle, and said that the events of 2016 required them to play a more active role in the election process than merely rubber-stamping who the voters in their states picked. But the Hamilton electors didn't get far. For starters, they didn't get nearly enough support. Then, some of their faithless votes were ruled invalid because of laws in their states binding them to the popular vote winner in their state. A lawsuit grew out of those invalidations that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Last May, the court ruled 8-1 to one that states were well within their rights to remove electors if they didn't vote for the candidate they are bound to. They said nobody here expects that electors are going to vote uh, according to their will, they ex they, we expect that they're going to vote according to popular will. I myself was surprised that, that that was the reading of it. I thought that they would be more originalist in their intentions and force uh, national legislators to, to move to an amendment. They didn't do that. And yet we still have some potential for chaos because only 14 states have requirements that bind electors and can remove electors. Uh, the remaining states, there's essentially 400 uh, electors that are still free agents, that there's no means to remove them if they cast a faithless vote. It seems like every four years now, we go back to relitigating the merits of the Electoral College, especially after chaotic campaigns like 2016. And depending on how the next few weeks play out, it wouldn't be surprising if it's a debate we're having again after this election. So to prepare you to follow those conversations, I asked Rob to run through some of the best arguments for and against the Electoral College. <laughs> you know, it's funny because the Electoral College, uh, it's, it's a little bit like the weather, like everybody has an opinion on it and everybody <laughs> feels like they're an expert on it. Uh, and then when you start dealing a little bit more or digging a little bit more deeply into it, you realize that there's a lot of other issues that go into it. Uh, so many of the arguments for the Electoral College include, uh, you know, that without it, candidates would only campaign 
perhaps on the coasts or the most populated states. Uh, other arguments include that it, it helps protect us against election fraud uh, if it were to happen at the national level. Uh, it, you know, one argument that I don't hear a lot, but I think could be made, is that uh, by having swing states, uh, it can produce more, perhaps a more efficient means of of running a, a national campaign by only focusing on swing states, if indeed swing states are representative of the country. Um, so those are some of the kind of major arguments for the Electoral College. Uh, kind of, again, protecting federalism would probably be at the forefront of it. But opponents of the Electoral College point to many flaws in those arguments, starting with the idea that the Electoral College leads to national elections. It really is erroneous uh, because, as you're seeing right now, candidates, they're not putting campaign resources uh, throughout the country. They're, they're focusing their, their energy on only the swing states. And a swing state is a state where the outcome is uncertain. So if you're in a state where the outcome is uncertain, you can expect to see a lot of money and time spent by by candidates. If you're in a state where the, the outcome is pretty certain uh, in November, you're not going to see anything of the candidates. In fact, in the last presidential election, which came down to a change in just 40,000 votes, if 40,000 voters had changed their minds in just a few states, Hillary Clinton would have been the president. That's a, that's a very small fraction. And yet... Uh, 94% of the campaigning in 2016 happened in just 12 states. Uh, and, and 75% happened in just six states. So the argument that the Electoral College forces candidates to campaign across the country just isn't true. And in fact, not one state that is the least populated, i.e. a state with three Electoral College votes, which would be the bare minimum, saw one visit from a presidential candidate in 2016. The 2016 campaign also didn't help the case that the Electoral College is a bulwark against election interference. For many, many years, the argument has been made that the Electoral College helps prevent uh, election fraud by isolating that election fraud. So if there's fraud in a, in a particular state, you can kind of root it out. But at the same time, in 2016, you saw that uh, bipartisan report from the United States Senate found that the foreign interference that occurred focused their attention on swing states. So the argument could be made that the Electoral College might make it easier to interfere in an election and, and perhaps uh, tilt an election for one candidate or another. Many Americans are now calling for the Electoral College to be repealed and to allow the winner of the national popular vote to simply win the presidency. According to a Gallup poll last month, 61% of Americans now support abolishing the Electoral College. That's a six-point uptick from a year ago. But it's not the first time there have been movements to ditch the Electoral College. It, it's truly fascinating. The Electoral College, there, there's been hardly any other feature, I can think of no other feature that has had uh, more proposals to amend or abolish it than the Electoral College. It, it, it's had well over 700, pushing 800 proposals just at the federal level. It's always been a, a point of contention. And, and of course, the stakes are high. We're talking about our national, our national leader. And so uh, among those proposals, and we've come very close to eliminating the Electoral College, or at least having it up for an amendment uh, in the past. Once, such an amendment even gained the sitting president's support. That was in the late 1960s. Uh, at that time, 
this had happened uh, as a result of uh, a very close election between Democrats and Republicans, but also the, the rise of third party candidates as well, and uh, which could certainly throw a wrench into uh, the Electoral College uh, and, and vote counts. Um, we also so in that at that time period, Republican President Richard Nixon had come out in support of amending the Electoral College to a popular vote. Uh, you had over 300 members of the House of Representatives that voted to uh, abolish the Electoral College, and it ended up tied up in a in a filibuster in the Senate, and so it never went to a, a vote in the Senate. Uh, you had 80 percent approval to to move to a direct popular vote amongst the public at that time too. Then, it was a Republican president who backed abolishing the Electoral College. Now, after losing two presidential elections in the past two decades where they won the popular vote, it's mostly Democrats who are pushing for its extinction. Over the years, the two parties have switched their stances a few times, depending on the political circumstances of the moment. You actually saw a spike in favor of the Electoral College after the 2016 election. That was mostly movement by Republicans to support uh, the institution. Uh, yet, what's interesting is if you go back just a few years, you saw a lot of Republican state legislatures considering ways to change how the Electoral College functions. So you had state legislatures in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania looking to change their Electoral College uh, awarding of votes from the winner-take-all system to district representation or proportional representation because they feared that they were losing out on electoral votes in presidential elections that they could capture if they moved to that different system. So Republicans have looked at different ways to engineer uh, change to the Electoral College pretty recently. Uh, so and that is another one of the reform proposals is to move to systems more like Maine and Nebraska, where you have district representation. Now, the leading proposal to reform the Electoral College is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, a very clever means to do so. Uh, you don't need to amend the Constitution. You just need a, a number of states to enter into a compact that... Uh, add up to 270 electoral college votes. Once the compact reaches 270 electoral college votes, they pledge their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. They made great headway after the 2016 election, and they welcomed several additional states into the compact. They're now close to 200 electoral college votes. I think it's at 196 right now. So that that is uh, kind of the, the, the main method short of abolishing the Electoral College through the amendment process. Interestingly, as soon as the Democrats took control after the 2018 midterms, among the first things that they did was to um, introduce a bill to abolish the Electoral College. But just as they have before, Rob said the political winds could soon change again, and Democratic support for ending the Electoral College may dwindle before you know it. The demographics in some ways certainly favor Republicans in the Midwest as far as the Electoral College go. However, demographics in certain states like Texas and Georgia might suggest that they might swing from red to purple and potentially to blue uh, in the not so distant future. If that were to occur, 
because Democrats do very well in many of the most populated states, they could rack up an Electoral College victory with as few as 16 states. And they're 16 reliable states. This is not just kind of, you know, picking states out of a, uh, you know, out of, out of a hat. These are states that reliably vote Democrat. Uh, if that were to happen, they could lock out uh, Republicans from an Electoral College victory and not have to win in states like Ohio, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So if, if we were to see something like that, I think we would see, again, a renewed energy, certainly not just Democrats. Democrats actually might come to love the Electoral College at that point, and Republicans might come to loathe it. One thing, though, is certain. For now, the Electoral College is here to stay. And this year, there are 538 electoral votes that are going to be awarded. Presidential candidates need a majority, 270, to win the White House. So that's the magic number Joe Biden and Donald Trump will be laser-focused on for the next few weeks. Thanks to Professor Rob Alexander for being my guest on this week's episode of Wake Up to Politics. If you want to get my newsletter in your inbox every weekday morning, sign up at wakeuptopolitics.com. Gabe Fleischer is the host and creator of Wake Up to Politics. This podcast is a co-production of Gabe Fleischer and St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is the political editor, sound design and mixing by Aaron Dorr. The music you heard on today's episode comes from Key Locas, Ketza, Glad Rags, Lately Kind of Yeah, and Charisma.